We're reading from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 to chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, You can find it in your service sheet. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings, brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Thanks, James. I wonder if any of you recognise any of these faces that are up on the screen. Just for full disclosure, I don't have a clue who any of them are, but I thought some of you might be hipper than I am. They're actually all influencers. And it's such an interesting idea, isn't it, that uh, because someone who's called an influencer wears something or reads something or says something or does something and puts it on social media, other people also do those same things. Now, I'm not really into the whole influencer thing. Some of you might be. But even if you're not someone who follows particular influencers, there are, for all of us, lots of people that we listen to, aren't there? There are so many voices that we hear in our lives. In your workplace, there are lots of people that you probably listen to, some because you have to, uh, some who are your boss or superior to you, Uh, some maybe because you value their opinion or expertise. When it comes to world affairs, current affairs, politics, there are probably voices you really like listening to, particular politicians, particular authors, particular commentators on social media. And the same might be true in your personal life when it comes to making decisions. Maybe there are particular family members or particular friends whose opinions you value, 
who you listen to, who you ask when you have decisions to make. It's really interesting to reflect on who are the people that influence us, who are the people we listen to, and why do we listen to those particular people. Today's passage is all about listening and about salvation. It's about who we listen to. It's about how we listen. And it's about what happens when we don't listen well. So let's have a closer look. The passage and an outline are in the news sheet, so it would be really great if you can have that open. You probably noticed when James read for us that the passage kind of starts a bit awkwardly. For to which of the angels did God ever say? It's because we're kind of partway through an argument that the writer has been building. And it flows directly out of verse 4, which says, The Son became as much superior to the angels as the name he has, inher has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say? And what we see rolling out here in verses 5 to 14 is a lot of evidence supporting this statement that the son is superior to the angels. I feel a bit like I'm back in my legal days. I could be in court uh, tendering evidence for this statement. Exhibit one, your honour. We'll look at that evidence in a minute. But first of all, you might wonder what's with the angels in this passage? As Alex said last year, angels are primarily messengers in the Bible who announce God's word to humans. So you might remember both Mary and Joseph in the lead up to Jesus' birth had an angel come and tell them that that was what was going to happen. But I think what Hebrews has in mind here in particular is the work of the angels in giving the law in the Old Testament. We hear that at other points in the New Testament as well. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is speaking to the Sanhedrin and he refers to the law that was given through angels. Paul also makes a similar reference in Galatians chapter 3 where he talks about the law that was given, given through angels. So the angels had a really important role in the Old Testament as God's messengers and givers of the law. And we learn a little bit more here too about the angels. We learn that they are to worship the sun in verse 6. We learn in verse 7 that God makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. I think the point there is that the angels are God's servants and they're to do God's bidding. It's an idea picked up again in verse 14. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So angels are servants of God for the benefit of humanity, for all of those who'll be saved. As we work through this passage, we'll see that the focus isn't really on the angels. They're here as a comparison for the Son. And this comparison is really helpful for us because we learn a lot from it about who Jesus is. That's a highly contested question today, isn't it? There's probably less familiarity with Jesus in Melbourne now than maybe there was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. And that can put us under pressure. Perhaps sometimes we're troubled by doubts about Jesus' identity. Is it reasonable to believe what we do about who Jesus is? What do we actually believe about Jesus' identity? For some of you here, you might feel really confident in what you believe about who Jesus is. 
Maybe some of you have some questions though. And around you, uh, your colleagues, maybe family members, friends, maybe there are some of those people who have real questions about who Jesus is. Right here, we learn some amazing things about Jesus' identity. The basic message in the passage is that Jesus is better than the angels. And the method here is really clever. It's really clever, especially for Christians who were being pressured to return back to the Old Testament and their Jewish practice. Reading between the lines, that's what we think was happening here. But the method the writer uses shows the, uses the Old Testament itself to show that Jesus is better than the angels. If the Old Testament says Jesus is better, there can't be any reason for returning back to Old Testament religion and practices. And this method is helpful for us as well. We see that the Old Testament is a Christ-centered book. We learn about a lot about who Jesus is from the Old Testament. And we see that the Old Testament is God's word to us. Six times in Hebrews chapter 1, we read, God says, followed by a quote from the Old Testament. God speaks to us through the Old Testament. And as he speaks to us here, we hear five things about Jesus' identity. So let's have a look at those. First of all, we see that Jesus is the son of God the Father in verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. The implied answer to the question, of course, is that God didn't say that to any of the angels. Jesus is the one and only son of the father. The Old Testament quotes here are from Psalm 2 and from 2 Samuel 7. These were really key passages for early Christians as they grappled with the identity of Jesus. Both of these passages speak of the Messiah, the King, the ultimate son of David, as God's own special son. And the New Testament echoes this testimony at really key points in Jesus' life. So at Jesus' baptism in Mark chapter 1, a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At the transfiguration, when Jesus was up on the mountain praying with Peter, James and John, his face was changed, uh, his clothes were really bright like lightning. Luke 9 says, a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And Romans chapter 1 verse 4 speaks of Jesus' resurrection. Through the spirit of holiness, he was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is the son of God the Father. Secondly, we see here that Jesus is worthy of worship in verse 6. Again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This is a quote from Moses' song as they uh, stood on the edge of the promised land in Deuteronomy 32. The logic is pretty clear, isn't it? When the son is born, the angels are to, are to worship him. So clearly, Jesus is better than the angels. And if he's worthy of the angels' worship, he's certainly worthy of ours as well. So Jesus is the son of God the Father. Jesus is worthy of our worship. Thirdly, and linked to that, we see in verse 8 that Jesus is the eternal God and King. This is a quote from Psalm 45. It was a psalm written for the King of Israel and a psalm written about the King of Israel. 
it addresses the king as God's representative. But Jesus fulfills that in himself. He is the eternal God and king. He is a king who is perfectly just, we see from these verses, a king who hates wickedness and loves righteousness. How much do we long in our world for leaders who are just and true, for leaders who never do wrong? The good news is we have one. Jesus is the eternal, perfect king. He is reigning now, even though he's not yet fully declared, not yet fully seen as king of all. But he will be one day when he returns. Fourthly, we see here in this passage that Jesus is the eternal creator in verses 10 to 12, quoting here from Psalm 102. This is a really beautiful psalm, and we see that Jesus is the eternal one who was there at the beginning, whose years will never end. He created all things. He is in control of all things. The image of the created order as a robe is a really evocative one. Heaven and earth will one day pass away, and there's this picture of the sun rolling up the robe that is the created order. But Jesus will always remain. We read later in Hebrews 13 that Jesus remains the same yesterday and today and forever. This reminder that Jesus is our creator and sustainer helps us with issues like climate change. Our role as stewards of God's creation means we should always be working for the good of this creation. When it doesn't seem to be going well, when we feel bleak about it, we don't need to despair. We can be confident that Jesus the creator still is in control of his creation, that even when it wears out, he is in control and he will remain. Finally and fifthly here, we see that Jesus is the victorious king. Psalm 110 is quoted here. It's a psalm about the enthronement of God's true king at God's right hand. It's about his sovereign rule, his sovereign rule which he will exercise until everything that thwarts his purposes will be defeated. The son has sat down at the right hand of God in heaven, at the place of highest honour and power in the universe. One day, victory over all enemies will be his. Colin Buchanan, some of you might know, nailed this in one of his songs. Jesus is the mighty, mighty king. God made him the boss of everything. These five things paint an incredible portrait of who Jesus is. It hardly needs to be said in light of all this evidence that's been lined up that he is better than the angels. He is better than all things. But just for a moment, imagine meeting an angel who comes to you with a message for you from God. How would you feel? People in the Bible were terrified when an angel came. Would you listen? I reckon I would. What we've just heard, though, is that God has sent each of us a better messenger, a better messenger than the angels. It's a bit like getting a call from your kid's school. If you get a call from the admin department, that's kind of pretty run-of-the-mill. If you get a call from the head-of-year teacher, that's probably a bit more important, you pay a bit more attention. If you get a call from the principal, you're really listening. Because of who Jesus is, he is worth listening to. That's the conclusion that Hebrews takes us to after this incredible portrait. 
Verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, because of who Jesus is, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. We'll come back to that in a moment. But as we keep reading, we see that not only is Jesus better than the angels, but his message is better than the message that the angels brought. Verse 2, since the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Election campaigns are full of messages, aren't they? Flyers in the letterbox, TV ads, radio ads, social media ads, policy announcements. And the theory of an election campaign is that we listen to all of this information that's thrown at us and we make a decision to vote for whoever we think has the best message. It's about competing messages and looking for the best message that we can find. Here in Hebrews, it's not so much about competing messages because we've already seen from the author's methodology that the message of the angels in the Old Testament was fulfilled in Jesus. The angel's message was good, but Jesus' message is one of so great a salvation. Jesus' message is better because it fulfills the promises of the Old Testament. We see in verse 3 that the salvation of Jesus' message was first announced by the Lord. And we hear that happening as we read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. You hear it all through the Gospels, but especially at the beginning, Jesus announces his message. So in Matthew 4, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And he does it near the beginning of Luke as well. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue preaching and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah 61 and he reads it out and then says, I am the fulfillment of this promise, of this promise to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom, healing and the year of the Lord's favour. This message of Jesus was confirmed to the writer of the Hebrews by eyewitnesses of Jesus, by those who heard him. And then in verse 4 we read, God also testified to this message of a great salvation by signs, wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Again, if you read the Gospels, you see this. You, you see the miracles, the signs, the wonders that accompanied Jesus' life and preaching. And if you read the book of Acts and some of the letters of the New Testament, you see the church empowered as the Holy Spirit equipped his people with gifts to serve. Jesus brings a message of great salvation, the message he himself proclaimed, a message that was then heard and passed on by eyewitnesses, a message that was testified to by great works of God. Jesus' message is contrasted with that of the angels. Going back to verse 2, the message spoken through angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. This is the message of the Old Testament law. We read it in books like Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And especially in Deuteronomy, in a chapter like Deuteronomy 28, 
we see spelled out there the consequences of obedience to the law, the consequences of disobeying the law. We read about blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. But here we read, if the message of the angels came with consequences attached, how much more does the great salvation of Jesus, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? It's sometimes said that the God of the Old Testament was a God of anger and punishment and the God of the New Testament is a God of love. It's a false dichotomy though. It's not something that we see in the Bible. And the movement of these verses actually goes the other way. The greater message of salvation in the New Testament implies greater punishment for rejecting God's Son. Hebrews chapter 9 summarises both this message of great salvation offered by the Son, but also judgment for those who fail to heed the message. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hearing about punishment and judgment is incredibly sobering, isn't it? It's a reality acknowledged here to urge us in a different direction, to urge us to pay attention to what we've heard in God's Son. So there's a flow of thought all the way from chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 2, verse 4. And it's something like this. We have heard the message of God's great salvation through his glorious Son, the perfect and all-powerful King. Therefore, this is where the rubber hits the road, therefore we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away because there is no escape from God's judgment if we ignore this great salvation. Years ago, I was swimming on one of the northern beaches in Sydney. I'd been in a meeting all day. It was a Saturday. Uh, It was a church meeting while I was a ministry trainee. And at the end of the day, a couple of us decided we would go to the beach as a kind of recovery strategy. It was the middle of summer. It was a beautiful day. And uh, the beach was uh, pretty empty because it was the end of the day. The lifesavers had gone home. The flags weren't there. Uh, And we had a great time swimming. I stayed in longer than my friend Pete. And I was having a great time. The water was warm. I was bobbing away, kind of daydreaming, enjoying being out beyond where the waves were breaking. I suddenly realised, though, that I was way further from the shore than I knew. I looked back at the beach and I could see Pete waving his arms and beckoning me to come in. As soon as I realised where I was, I was scared. I could feel my heart start pounding. I had uh, no intention of being out that far. And I started swimming. I swam really hard. There was a little bit of a, a tug away from the beach. And it took me a long time to get back in. I have to say, uh, swimming at the beach hasn't been the same since. It was so easy for me to drift in the water. It was dangerous to drift. And the same is true for us when it comes to this great salvation that the Son offers. 
It's easy to drift and it's dangerous to drift. And we may not even notice if we are drifting. I wonder what this might look like for you. What makes you vulnerable to drifting? Perhaps we're vulnerable because although we acknowledge our need to depend on God, we really function in our own strength. And we seem to get by okay, but we become lazy and passive in our Christian obedience and we drift away from God. Perhaps some of us are vulnerable because we see and hear attractive narratives in the culture around us, narratives that offer fulfilment in our career, fulfilment in relationships or family, fulfilment in our financial security. And so we drift in those directions and we let them shape our lives. Perhaps we're sure that Jesus is good, but perhaps not convinced that he is better than everything. And so we fill our lives with busyness, with lots of the good things that God gives us and squeeze Jesus in around all of that until we stop squeezing him in, him in and we drift away. Perhaps we just don't think. Perhaps we follow the patterns of the people around us as we make our decisions, decisions about careers, decisions about homes and holidays, decisions about how we shape our lives. And so our lives are shaped more by the created than by the creator. Perhaps we're just comfortable. We don't really need God. And so we drift away. Perhaps we have big questions about what the Bible means for us today, about how it addresses big contemporary issues. And the complexity of those questions seems too hard to address. And so maybe we drift towards another narrative. Perhaps we've been disappointed or hurt in our lives. Perhaps we've been uh, disappointed by church and we don't know what all of that means for Jesus and who he is. And so we drift away to protect ourselves. Perhaps we've seen other people drifting and we don't know what to make of that. And so we drift too. Perhaps we want something more from God, a personal message, a bigger experience. And so we go searching for spiritual experiences, but take our eyes off the salvation that Jesus offers. I wonder what it is for you. I've felt most of those pressures at different times in my life. I think we're all vulnerable to drifting. And it's really helpful if we can identify how we're vulnerable because that's a step towards not drifting. None of this means we can't enjoy the good things in our lives. It doesn't mean we can't learn from the wisdom of the world, but it does mean that always what we've heard from the sun should critique all of the other messages that we hear. This passage is like Pete standing on the beach, waving his arms to call me in. God has sent the ultimate messenger with the most important message we will ever hear. The antidote to drifting is to pay the most careful attention to what you've heard from the sun. It's not easy to do that. So what might that look like? My first suggestion might sound a bit like a Sunday school answer, but coming to church every week, reading the Bible regularly, being part of a connect group, are three great strategies. Doing all of those doesn't guarantee that we'll be paying careful attention to Jesus. 
but all of them can really help. We're still near the beginning of the year. This is a really great time to be making decisions about how our life will be shaped during this year. So please reach out if you'd like to join a connect group. Reach out if you'd like some resources to help you read the Bible and commit to being at church every week. There are lots of other ways that we can pay careful attention to Jesus. Listening to Christian music or podcasts, reading Christian books, being accountable to a Christian friend. Sometimes it's really hard to pay attention to Jesus. I've been a Christian for a long time now and sometimes I feel like it gets harder to trust Jesus as I get older. The pain that I see around me seems worse than it did when I was younger. The questions I have about things that I've seen in my life, about things that I see in the world, seem bigger. As I try to pay careful attention to Jesus, I'm really thankful for those who listen to me, for people who talk to me about Jesus, who pray for me. I'm really thankful at the moment for the Psalms, which I'm reading through. I'm thankful for Christian music, which helps me to lament as well as to praise God. I want to finish with a final story. Some of you may know this. It's the story of Jason and the sirens from Greek mythology. Jason was a hero and the leader of the Argonauts. He led them on their quest for the Golden Fleece. On their return journey, they had to sail past the sirens who lived on three small rocky islands. The sirens were half bird, half woman. They lured sailors to destruction on the rocks by the sweetness of their song. Orpheus was a legendary musician. He accompanied Jason on this trip. And when Orpheus heard the voices of the sirens, he drew his lyre and he played beautiful music. He played beautiful music that was louder than the music of the sirens. It drowned out their bewitching songs and it kept the sailors safe from destruction. Brothers and sisters, there are so many voices competing for our attention. There are so many voices offering satisfaction and the good life. Many bewitching songs in our world which can cause us to drift. But only one voice offers true salvation. Only one voice offers the true good life. Only one voice can keep us safe from destruction. God has spoken to us by his son, who is much better than every other voice. Let's pay careful attention to him so that we don't drift away. We're going to sing in a moment. And this song gives us a really lovely opportunity to respond to this passage. It's a song that is a declaration that Jesus is better. It's a prayer that we will believe that as we're tempted in other directions. So let's stand and sing. <laughs>